Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the public policy challenges affecting the Asia and Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. And I'm Sharon Bessel. Uh, recently, the world marked International Women's Day for 2018. And today we're looking at a global issue that is especially relevant to the movement for gender equality. That issue is violence against women. And we've heard so much about issues of violence against women and sexual harassment. Um, and, a, and a range of abuse in the media lately. But, Martin, if you just search through the UN estimates of the size of the problem, you come across some absolutely shocking statistics. So the World Health Organization estimates that one in three women worldwide have experienced violence at the hands of an intimate partner, and that globally 38% of murders of women are committed by an intimate male partner. So really, really disturbing figures. Now, those are some pretty appalling numbers. But it, it turns out that underneath them is quite a complex story. For instance, you know, what do we mean by violence? How do the figures change when we account for things like race, class, age and disability? And how sure can we be of our data, especially for an issue we know is likely to be severely underreported? That's right, Martin. There are some real complexities around trying to, to understand and to measure these really difficult issues. But helping us try to untangle some of this today is Sally Engel-Mary. Sally is Silver Professor of Anthropology at New York University and is also Faculty Director at the Centre for Human Rights and Global Justice at the New York University School of Law. She's also spent quite a bit of time in Australia and she's visiting here at the moment. She's the author or editor of 16 books and a special journal issue looking at international law, human rights and gender violence, and also the author of a range of journal articles. She's a very impressive and a very interesting person who brings some, some really deep thought to these issues. Now, before we say hello and uh, introduce Sally, a reminder that we would love to hear your thoughts on what we discuss on this podcast. You can find us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the Australian National University's Gender Institute for helping make today's podcast possible. The Gender Institute is a cross-campus virtual institute at the ANU and it provides a focus for existing activity on issues of gender and sexuality and uh, a catalyst to develop and deepen them. You can find out more about the Gender Institute at their website which is www.genderinstitute.anu.edu.au. You can also sign up to their newsletter there. I've got to say I'm a big fan of the newsletter. It's one of the few newsletters, Sharon, that when it comes in, I don't instinctively reach for the little trash can button. It really is a great newsletter. And the Gender Institute does some amazing work across campus, but also beyond the campus, bringing together networks of researchers and raising really fundamentally important issues. So if people aren't connected with them yet, 
I'd encourage them to, to do so. And, and as you say, have a look at that really interesting newsletter. And a fantastic range of public events too. Yes, absolutely. Um, including um, a talk by Sally while she's here. So now let's hear what Sally has to say around some of these very, very difficult issues uh, on tackling violence uh, against women. Sally Engelmary, many thanks for joining the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Domestic violence is an issue we are now starting to hear about regularly, but that hasn't always been the case. How have perceptions of violence against women changed in the last 50 years? Oh, the change has been enormous. I'd actually like to go back to the 19th century when there was virtually no attention paid to this problem at all. In fact, the idea in the late 19th, early 20th century is that insofar as there was abuse in families. It was the drunken brute phenomenon. So it was attributed mostly to drinking. And there was a prudent part of the temperance movement was about not having men beat their wives. But beyond that, there was very little discussion of the problem. Uh, It's just one sign of how unimportant it was considered. Uh, I did research in a small town in Hawaii on the history of domestic violence. And I came across a police report from 1950. And in that Police report, they listed cases of domestic violence as family trouble under miscellaneous problems, along with lost dogs. So it was clearly denigrated as not a significant problem. That was 1950. The transformation really began in the 1970s with the women's movement, which began by arguing that violence against women of one woman was violence against all women. So they shifted it from the idea that this is a lifestyle problem of the poor to one that it was inherent in gender inequality. And this then mobilized uh, the whole women's movement to begin to focus on this problem. And it's interesting that you can see this turn in taking violence against women seriously in many different countries happening more or less simultaneously. Uh, India began to have concerns about rape, custodial rape, concerns about domestic violence emerged in China, uh, and certainly in the U.S., Canada, Australia, all more or less in the late 70s, early 80s. It's not that the problem was new, but that what had happened is it was moving from the category of this is marriage, you have to put up with it, Or even more fundamentally, this is a kind of discipline that husbands and fathers are entitled to exercise against women who in some ways misbehave. And that's a very old and established idea that has still not disappeared. So those changes really started to happen in the 70s. How have perceptions changed between then and now? Well, what's interesting is that at least in my experience looking at the U.S. and I I suspect in other parts of the world as well, It still happens a lot. It's not clear that it happens any less, but we don't actually know how frequent it is, which is another problem. But at least there's a sense that it's not a good thing, that what we've seen is a shift in the line between what constitutes discipline and what constitutes abuse and is a crime. And so things that used to be seen as appropriate discipline if a woman didn't take care of her children or she got dressed up and put some feathers in her hair, and then her husband would think she was looking for uh, some kind of affair with somebody else. That notion that this was a behavior that was appropriately viewed as a need for discipline on the man's part has not changed. So the things that where violence seems to be acceptable is much less. And the sphere which is viewed as abuse is much larger. There's still some of either side, and there are a lot of variations on the basis of 
class and urban-rural differences and education about how exactly this line between what's abuse and what's um, discipline is drawn. So Sally, as part of the growing recognition of violence against women as a problem and recognition that you know, it's perhaps more often abuse than discipline, um, despite that sort of blurred line that you talk about, um, we've also seen a recognition of the fact that we really don't know how widespread this, this problem is. And we've seen a proliferation of efforts, both within countries and globally, to try to measure violence against women. And you've made the really important point that despite claims to rationality and objectivity, measurement is deeply political. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that gets measured today and what it is that doesn't get measured? Oh, yes. Well, this is an issue that I care very deeply about. I've been studying domestic violence since probably the early 90s, looking first at a women's crisis center in Hawaii and then moving to looking at the UN intervention on violence against women as a human right. And the last four or five years, I've been studying efforts to come up with ways of measuring violence against women globally. And it's important to get the data, the information, how common it is, is enormously significant in building the visibility of the problem and generating social movements and state intervention. But it's very hard to know actually how common it is. So you may have situations, as I saw when I was doing work in a domestic violence program, where a woman would say, no, I haven't been victimized. Um, you know, the, my husband slaps me around, but that's just normal. And then she'll go through this program, and people will talk to her about what actually happened, and she'll finally say, oh, maybe that was a crime. So if you rely on asking people, they may actually be interpreting the behavior in different ways depending on their experience. So asking how often a person has experienced violence is in many ways not the easiest way to do it. So one of the solutions that people who try to count this have made is to say not have you experienced domestic violence, but have you been hit, kicked, slapped, and there's something called the conflict tactic scale which specifies the activities. But unfortunately, the activities that we consider domestic violence are different in different societies. So in South Asia, there's acid throwing. In the U.S., there's threatening with guns. In many different parts of the world, there are different kinds of violence. But this only covers interpersonal violence. And one of the problems is that we have tended to see violence against women only in a perpetrator and a victim, which really ignores the problems of structural violence, police violence, violence in, in custody, violence in wartime, uh, sexual slavery. I mean, there's a whole range of other kinds of issues that can be sex trafficking, that can be viewed as violence against women that don't fit into this strategy of doing victimization surveys and asking women how often they were victimized and who the perpetrator was. So it's difficult. There are efforts to measure these days going on. Uh, one of the things I've looked at is an effort by the United Nations actually the United Nations Statistical Commission in particular, to come up with indicators for violence against women. They have taken a very relational definition of the problem, right? How often has this woman, have you, the woman interviewee, been victimized within 12 months? How often within your lifetime? And then the victimization is this kind of list of activities. So you can see it, it asks about the severity and the frequency and whether it's physical or sexual violence and whether the perpetrator is an intimate partner or not. It's a very limited conception. But even at that, it's very hard to imagine 
a way of measuring violence against women that you can use globally. So these guidelines are now going to be given to national statistical offices around the world to try to do surveys and count how often this problem happens. Uh, last week, I was at a meeting of the UN Statistical Commission in New York, and there was a report on the extent to which there has been successful efforts to count how many cases of violence against women there are. And the UN Statistical Commission representative said there are now about 130 countries where there's some data, and there have been interviews with about 4 million women. Now, that may sound like a lot, but when you see that there are, what, 5 billion, 6 billion people in the world, this is a drop in the bucket. And so in order to really know this, there, it costs a great deal of money. You end up having to do victimization surveys. Um, and the effort to do a good survey is actually a very expensive, difficult thing to do. And one of, the, one of the things that happens is there's a lot of contestation about how these surveys get done. Uh, and there's a risk, in fact, of doing a survey poorly. And the risk is that you may get a low statistic. So let's say you do a survey of a society where women live in, in family groups, and the surveyor comes and says, I'm doing a survey on violence against women. Can I talk to a woman of the household? Um, and maybe this can be done in private, or maybe not. And so the woman is then being interviewed, and is she going to say anything? Is she going to talk about how she's been victimized by when there may be people around and they know she's talking to the interviewers? The answer is no. So you'll get very low rates of disclosure. So there was a survey, I was told, in Indonesia that reported that only 3% of women had experienced violence. This seems extraordinarily low. I mean, there are variations among countries, but this is sort of what happens if the survey is not done well and the questions aren't asked well. And, and so the problem is not just gathering information, but gathering it well and sensitively and um, attentive to the whole conditions of the interview. So one of the things that we, we have seen in recent years is an increasing desire to have globally comparable surveys. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that's a worthwhile objective or do you think that's actually problematic and we should be moving much more to, to national or even to local contexts in terms of understanding rather than having this drive for global comparability? Mm. You know, this is such an important and murky problem. The value of a local survey is that the local survey can recognize what are the real conditions and nature of violence and how do you frame the question in order to get responses. Uh, when I looked at the beginnings of the Violence Against Women movement in several different countries, it's interesting that each organization began by conducting its survey. You have to show how common this problem is. And so they would do a survey of the community, um, whether you know, Fiji, Hawaii, um, various towns in India. I mean, this was a common strategy. So once that process happens, then the question is, can we get national data? Uh, and there have been a number of national-level surveys, but they're typically done in wealthier countries, uh, North, North America, Australia, actually one of the more interesting ones, uh, Latin America. But there are many countries in the world where this, there's no research at all, there's no data at all, you know, parts of Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, where countries just don't have the resources to do this. So what happens is those studies then become the model for doing this research in other countries. But it may be that the categories are wrong or the approach is wrong. So 
as we move towards the global measurement in order to compare, there's a tendency to build on the existing research, which tends to be mostly global north wealthier countries, and so less appropriate to really understanding countries that have less data, less capacity to collect data. So I would, my personal choice would be to opt for the local or national surveys rather than pushing towards the global. Uh, and yet there is a power in global data that allows you to rank countries. And this is a strategy that's being used for all sorts of issues from freedom of the press to human development index to, you know, GDP per capita and so on. So it, it turns out to be kind of a powerful technology to put pressure on countries. We all know about ranking universities as well, which is another powerful technology. So there's sort of trade-offs, but the worry is that these global data collection processes miss so much that um, they are not as reliable as the local ones. So this is an either-or, I'm sorry to say, not a clear answer, but it's a great question. The Sustainable Development Goals seek to eliminate all forms of violence against women and girls. How important are the SDGs in sort of giving momentum to this issue? <laughs> oh, the SDGs are and then another very complicated problem. The SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, are a UN initiative to organize a development project from 2015 to 2030, and they build on something called the Millennium Development Goals, which were in existence from 2000 to 2015. The Millennium Development Goals are really focused on poverty and not on global issues. The Sustainable Development Goals are quite different. They were produced in a two-and-a-half-year process with lots of civil society intervention, and so they're much broader. And they include things like violence against women, access to justice, sustainable systems. So there are now 17 goals, which have been divided into 169 targets, and we now have 232 indicators. So there are a couple of indicators that do refer to violence against women. And interestingly, the language of these indicators is very similar to this, these indicators that the Statistical Commission developed that I just talked about. So these indicators have all the limitations of the way violence against women is conceptualized. Nevertheless, they suggest an effort to do some counting. And again, the counting is necessary to gather attention to the problem. But there's another whole difficulty in the Sustainable Development Goals, which is that as the goals have been translated into indicators, in other words, things that get measured, uh, many of the new, more kind of expansive, creative ideas actually turn out to be not yet measurable and not readily measurable. So the Interagency Expert Group dash SDGs, which is responsible. I, I mean, I could give you the acronym. You probably, there are too many. Which is responsible for developing the indicators has divided them all into tiers. There's tier one, which is a usable one. There's tier two, which uh, does has a developed methodology, but no data. And there's tier three, which has neither methodology nor data. Now, out of the 232 indicators, only 93 are tier one. So many of the others, these lovely new big broad ideas, are as yet unmeasurable or lacking data. And the violence against women indicators fall into tier two or three. So even though it looks like we're going to finally include these in the sustainable development goals, there's no, not enough data yet, not enough figuring out how to go about doing these measurements. So the 
SDGs have a great deal of promise, but there's a great deal of work. And I have just went to the Statistical Commission meeting discussing these SDGs, and the common drumbeat comment was, we need more capacity building, we need more training, we need more help in order to make this happen by all but the wealthiest countries. And of course, the idea is that each country is going to gather data on these indicators, and then somehow it's all going to be put together into one common system. But how exactly do you coordinate all these different forms of data collection? There's going to have to be training. There's, there was concern about data flows and so on. So the solution to this problem is turning out to be turning to private companies who can perhaps generate some of this data. Each of these indicators has a custodial agency, maybe a UN agency, uh, that will help them collect the data. And if there's no custodial agency, by 2020, the indicator will be dropped. So it's not an easy thing. And the... Uh hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the private data collectors may make up for this gap, but then again... Who's going to own the data? You know, is it going to be these companies? Is it going to be the government? And, and so we now have what they call a data war between the use of the state data, for which there is diminishing amount of revenue, and this private data, the big data, which looks cheap because it's already generated by other activities. So there's new developments coming along that are both promising and worrisome. One of the, the worrisome things, for me at least, when I think about the kinds of issues that you've just raised, Sally, is that violence against women in many ways is, is a deeply political issue. And it came on to the global agenda because it was a deeply political issue and that's the way it was framed um, by feminists at the, at the time, from the 1970s onwards. One of the things that worries me as we move towards this, this drive for data collection is that it becomes a technical exercise rather than a political ex exercise. I'd, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on, on that, whether it is something we need to worry about. Oh, definitely. Now, now, I mean, one of the problems with quantification in general is that it, it promises to provide objective, rational information that obscures the fact that it's political in origin. And yet the decision to measure this thing or that thing and how you measure it and how you categorize it is endlessly political. So, and, and I think we can see just what you're worrying about in the violence against women phenomenon because now there's all this debate about how do you collect the data and how do you measure it. And the question of what it is and what you're measuring seems to be off the table. Uh, and. And so the sort of expansive way of thinking about it, and I didn't even add the issues that the Violence Against Women movement cares about, such as intimidation, um, humiliation, name-calling, the whole stalking, a whole lot of other things uh, are not even being measured, uh, which are fundamental to the kind of political movement about violence against women. And so now we have instead this very kind of physical, how many blows did you get? I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that the statisticians decided 
that it was too hard to measure fear. This was too subjective, and so this was not included. Now, this is actually what we really want to know. Not just did a woman get slapped, but is she living in fear? And I, I, here I, I commend Australia because I came across one study that was done here in which women were asked what of their everyday activities they were circumscribing because of their fear. And I thought that's a really important question to ask. And it's not just, are you afraid? But you know, how has this shaped your work life, your school life, your family life? But that would be great to have as a global question. I, I'm not sure anybody has <laughs> raised it as a possibility. Um, you know, again, it has to be done sensitively. It's expensive if you are relying on people who are coming in with no training at all to do the interviews. It might be hard to do. The, the global discourse around both measuring and addressing violence against women tends to conflate women and girls. And we hear, as in the SDGs, you know, about eliminating violence against women and, and girls. girls yeah. And given the complex nature of violence and the ways in which it's embedded in power relations... I wonder whether we need to think more carefully about how age comes into play. Mm, mm. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about this <laughs> conflation of women and girls. You know, it's totally undiscussed. I mean, it's one of the many things that I find just doesn't show up in, in UN conferences. Another one being the problem of translation. So, what, so it, actually the SDGs say women over 15. The indicators are women... Maybe they're a little older. Um, it, it seems to me, just theoretically, these are, are quite different problems. The problem with measurements is you have to do lumping and splitting. And the lumping is essential because you can't possibly ask everything, and so this lumping is inherent in the problem, in the process. And, and as you say, the lumping can be very uh, difficult and miss a lot of variations that you want. There are actually lots and lots of kinds of lumping different kinds of things together, which are problematic. Is the situation the same for a woman who's 45 as a woman who's 18? Probably not, and they would both be described as adults. So the solution is you disaggregate. You say, all right, let's do every 10 years, 20 years. And So let's say you disaggregate by age. Well, then, of course, we would like to disaggregate on the basis of, say, urban-rural. And then you might want to do it on the basis of certain race, race and ethnicity, sexuality, disability, and pretty soon you have a very complicated set of variables and some small pockets, small ends, right? Not enough cases to really generalize. And then you have to have more surveys or you have to disproportionately survey certain small populations. And it ends up not being doable. And there we see the politics again. Which variables do you want to focus on? I've just read a paper on the extent of disaggregation in the SDGs. Now, they it says officially these variables should all, I mean, these indicators should all be disaggregated by age, sex. By the way, social class is an important issue, but nowhere does it ever even get mentioned because it's so hard to measure. So the SDGs are to be disaggregated by age, sex, urban, rural, disability, a few other variables. But the study looked in detail at the indicators, and not one of them specifically mentions disaggregation by race and ethnicity. Um, only a few talk about disability and age, and a few talk about gender. So despite the desire to have this all disaggregated, in practice, it's not being asked for. 
When we talk about violence, there tends to be a focus on violence against women. Mm. Where do men fit into Mm. this story? I have long thought about this as an important issue, actually. And I asked one of the statisticians who was behind the global project that I was studying, I said, why just women? What about men? And he said, well, this is just the way we've been doing it. You know, the ship is moving, we can't turn it. Um, And I think it's very problematic. There's lots of cases of the kind of sexualized violence against men. There are problems of rape in prison. There's lots of homophobic violence that is simply kind of off the table when we're talking about violence against women. And this, again, is a lumping together of various different things. And there are women who are violent, and they do attack men. Now, it is the case that women are more often injured than men, but it seems to me that we need a much more nuanced understanding that this is actually a problem of intimate gendered relationships in some cases, and it's a matter of power. Uh, There are statistics, I don't know how reliable they are, that uh, violence within same-sex relationships is as common as in heterosexual relationships. So by focusing only on women, we are missing a big piece of what's actually going on and what generates violence, which in, in my view has to do to some extent, and this is based on my ethnographic research, with the fear of losing connection. And it seems to me the perpetrator may well be violent because he's afraid that the other person, usually a man against a woman, but not always, is going to leave. And so the idea is that you're dependent on this person and you want to hang on to them, so you use violence and get them to stay, to maintain connection. I realize this is kind of a counterintuitive argument, but I think there's some truth to it. But there's no simple explanation. You know, there are many different kinds of violence and reasons and motivations, and um, we need to keep it complicated. But we also need to include men. Sally, about 10 years ago now, almost unbelievably, you published Human Rights and Gender Violence, Translating International Law into Local Justice. Um, And I must say, that's one of the most powerful and influential books that I've read. So I would encourage everyone listening to the podcast to get hold of that book. Um, In that book, you challenged the way global local divides are simplistically represented as the opposition between rights and culture. And you really problematise culture. Um, and, And I think enlightened our thinking about culture. Ten years on, how do you see the culture versus rights debate playing out in relation to violence against women? Have we become any more sophisticated than we were ten years ago? <laughs> I ask, hopefully. <laughs> and I answer, oh, with a sinking sensation. Uh, I don't think so, actually. I mean, so many of the issues that are of concern about violence against women and even human rights in general seem to focus on the idea of culture as oppressive. And culture equals tradition, and its tradition is oppressing people, and therefore we need to change tradition. Instead of looking at economic relations, power relations, the advent of neoliberalism, I mean, there are enormous numbers of changes happening in communities around the world that are not just about culture oppressing people. And of course, then there's still the idea that culture's out there, not here. And so culture continues to be a good excuse for other people behaving in ways that, you know, one doesn't think is a good thing. There may be progress. I I don't want to say no, but on the other hand, it's, it's a kind of an othering strategy. You know, these are people whose lives are dominated by culture, unlike mine. 
so I, I think this is not at all the way anthropologists think about culture. And, you know, there has been really a strong move towards seeing it as open and flexible and porous and not in some ways is controlling people's subjectivity and who they think they are and what's worth doing. On the other hand, as always, amenable to various kinds of transformations and external influence. So, I mean, that idea certainly is pervasive in my field and perhaps more so in a lot of other fields, but we're working on it. Not there yet. Do you see useful discussions, for example, in the SDG forums around the role of culture as a, as a force for positive change um, being embraced? Or is culture really just marginalised from those large global discussions around um, how, we, how we move forward in terms of a global social policy agenda or how we measure these complex issues in a way that's globally comparable? Mm, it's become very technical. So the SDG issues are all about does this indicator measure that and where are we going to get the data and the whole question about what it is you're measuring and why and where these categories came from seems to be off the table. Most of the discussion is about capacity and getting more data. Uh, so the very social, cultural, political issues that I think are really central to the whole project don't seem to be discussed. It's now moved into the, the technical and if only we could get the technical straight then we'd be fine. So and there's no, no discussion of culture at all that I have, I have heard. You know, I've argued that there's something called an indicator culture. Uh, I recently finished a book called The Seductions of Quantification, where I argue that actually we're endlessly preoccupied with measuring things and thinking that numbers are going to be objective and rational. We can know what's happening this way. And certainly the SDGs fit into this model uh, in which we're increasingly using these kinds of numbers as the basis for governance. And again, it's complicated. You know, the numbers are important for accountability, for making governments responsible for what they're doing. On the other hand, the numbers themselves are generated by political concerns and issues and things that are difficult that governments don't want to handle, don't get measured, and things that governments care about do get measured. So. You know, the linkage between quantification and governance is a really important one to look at. Finally, Sally, in uh, recent months we've seen the rise of the Me Too movement, which has drawn attention to the topic of sexual assaults against women. Does this movement indicate a growing awareness and willingness around the world to tackle gender-based violence? Are you, are you optimistic that we'll see much change in the decades ahead? Do I have to be honest? <laughs> um, the Me Too movement has been very bizarre for many feminists, myself included, because there's a sense that, oh, isn't this amazing? Who knew, right? And so we have, you know, Harvey Weinstein and other prominent figures who are being losing their jobs because suddenly this is exposed. But, you know, most women have known for many long years that this pattern is widespread and common. So what we have now is a shift to visibility of this. And yet there are some people, including people who are presidents of countries, who engage in this behavior and nothing happens to them. Uh, and so I, I worry that this won't last, that so those who are surprised will then think maybe the problem has gone away as they used to think it was. And those who know it's been with us forever and will continue to be with us forever are just going to go along and thinking it's forever. So I, 
I wish I could be more optimistic. I mean, it is true that making a problem visible does make a difference. As is the problem of violence against women, it became visible. So now sexual harassment's visible, although I think it's always been visible to victims. They know it happens all the time. And, you know, I sit around and talk to my fellow academics about their experiences as graduate students, and this is a very common experience in their workplaces. So, and the more people talk about it, the more clear it is that this is just everywhere. So making that change is going to be difficult. It's just a step. I hope it does last. I hope I'm not too pessimistic about it. Um, and I, I, there are some shifts in definitions of masculinity and the kind of privilege that it entails, but we have a long way to go. Sally, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, and I think that fundamental message that I take from what you're saying about the importance of politics, the importance of recognising power and unpacking power um, is, is such such a powerful <laughs> message, but such an important message. So, um, Sally, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Oh, you're very welcome, and I really appreciate you picked up my core concern. That's great. Thanks, Sally. That was Sally Engel-Mary, and many thanks to Sally for her time. It was a fascinating interview. And thanks also to uh, the Gender Institute, as I said at the start of this podcast, for helping us organize that interview really appreciate it so i've got sharon still with me sharon what did you make of all of that what are your sort of key take-home points from it martin i really enjoyed that conversation with sally um her her academic work her books have sold incredibly well have been incredibly influential and i think after hearing her talk we can understand why she really does bring some deep thinking to these issues for me there are a couple of things that i take away from that one is just how important it is to hang on to the political. You know, if we go back to the 1970s, um, which you know, many of us barely remember these days, but we remember the slogans as of the personal is political and the way in which feminism recast these ideas as being fundamentally political. And I think we need to hang on to that and we need to understand how power plays out um, and how embedded power is into the way that we understand, and as Sally pointed out, the way we measure these issues of violence against women. I think she made some really important points about thinking about structural violence. You know, clearly, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, family violence are things that we have to think about, we have to understand better, we have to address. But I think Sally's point about the, the importance of also understanding structural violence is really fundamentally important. An interesting answer as well to the question about where men fit into all of this. Yeah, I think that's right. I was really interested to hear what she she had to say um, about those issues. And this is really complex. We we cited some of the statistics at the beginning um, around the, the extent of intimate partner violence that women face. But as Sally pointed out, that's part of the story and we really don't know um, the kinds of violence that men may face within the home. But I think we also need to think much more about and understand much more deeply the range of violence that men face. So, for example, there are a number of, of good qualitative studies showing how vulnerable young men are to public violence, particularly in contexts of poverty and contexts contexts of the kind of structural violence that Sally talked about. So I think those issues are things that, that we really do need to think much more about and to think about how we both measure and address those issues. 
Finally, Sharon, she has been the author of uh, 16 books, and obviously you've read a number of these. For people who want to know more about her work, are there any particular books that you would point them towards as, as a starting point? Look, for me, um, her book on um, human rights and gender violence, translating international law into local justice, is, is really um, an incredibly powerful piece of work. Um, and it really does tease out some of the challenges um, of thinking about these issues and responding to these issues at a global level, but also understanding local context. And very importantly, um, understanding that culture is not necessarily a negative thing. The culture can be um, a powerful force for positive change, but the culture is both dynamic um, and also complex. So that work really addresses some of those issues in a very sophisticated way. But I'm also really influenced by the work that she's done around quantification. And she, Sally pointed out in the interview um, the problems of thinking about these issues only as a technical exercise. And so I think that work that she has done around the drive to measurement and the quantification of complex issues is something that we all should read and think deeply about. So, so lots in Sally's work to give us food for thought. That's great. Well, I think I'll probably go off and, and have a read of that book myself now. You've certainly sold it to me there. So that's all we have time for today. Thanks, Sharon, for being with us. And thanks again to Sally and the uh, Gender Institute for being part of this podcast. Don't forget, we are really keen to get your thoughts and feedback on what we do with the podcast and any thoughts you've got in terms of the interviewees or the content. You can get in contact with us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And you can keep up to date with all of the latest on public policy challenges facing the Asia Pacific region at our website, which is policyforum.net. We'll be back again soon with another podcast. But until then, cheerio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.